Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. We are those people. I'm Mike Bowden, just still joined with jo- by Joanna Marsh. Uh, this is the FreightWave show where we talk about the railroad industry. And uh, Joanna, I think we should just pick up where we left off last week. We sort of alluded to that we would talk about um, your article on Progress Rail trying to get a court to order Wabtech to sell GE Transportation. They just bought GE Transportation. Why would they... Um, why would Progress Rail want them to, to sell? Yeah, so um, Wabjack uh, bought GE Transportation. It, well, it finalized. The transaction finalized in 2019. I think it was around February or so. Uh, sometime in the first half of the year anyway. And um, Progress Rail is seeking to... Uh, is seeking... Uh, is asking the, the courts for um, Wabtech to... Uh, to, to compel Wabtech to divest of GE Transportation because of um, sort of competition concerns, or sort of saying that uh, Wabtech is trying to create a monopoly in terms of like uh, um, having that that software that helps with operations, and so um, Progress Rail is saying, "Hey, we we still have we we still are you know we still have our products as well, and also the locomotives part. I'm sorry, the locomotives part as well." Um, you know, obviously, you know, Wabtech produces locomotives and, and so does Progress Rail. And, um, and, you know, there's, there's a push for lower emissions locomotives, especially, you know, in places like California, where they're actually pushing for zero emission locomotives. And so um, you have uh, those two companies in the, in the supply space for locomotives, um, uh, Wabtech, uh, Progress Rail feels like Wabtech is kind of been um not only just dominating it but like making its its software uh kind of incompatible with with progress rail systems and so um so that's the reason why yeah that they're uh, they're seeking to uh you know compel the courts com- to, to <laughs> asking courts to com- compel Wabtech to divest so yeah i followed this one when i was a stock analyst and uh, that came to an end about 2019 and it was probably the one stock that i got the most calls on i mean all of those i mean even before the ge transportation deal it's one that you know people liked because of the concentration part of it was because of the concentration in the marketplace where for most of the products that webtech makes and and for anyone who doesn't know what webtech is they make components in all manner of locomotives rail cars even transit buses all over the world. Um, and they had refurbished, repaired old locomotives even before the GE transportation deal. The GE transportation deal got them to be an OEM manufacturer. And you see this, um, you know, nice looking stock chart, you know, up and to the right. Um, it was kind of a screaming buy during the, that sell-off of the pandemic. And basically the pandemic hit, stock went from $80 to $40 because no one thought anyone was going to buy a 
locomotive again or a rail car again, and that's steadily improved. And you know, it's off a little bit from its high, but the whole you know, stock market's off from, from, from its high. You know, now trading at you know one hundred six. Um, it is about 17 and a half times forward earnings, which is a lot for an, an industrial. And, and really one of the, the features of the company is most of the products that they make, you know, sometimes there's only one, maybe two competitors for those. And then, you know, the locomotives um, that we're discussing here, you I mean, you mentioned in your article, WebTech has sold about 75% of the active diesel locomotives in North America. And then their market share is about 90%. If you just look at the long haul, Freight locomotives that comply with the tier four emission standards. And so you almost have a couple of different kind of competing, um, you know, interests here where the governments want the locomotives to be, you know, more and more, um, you know, efficient in terms of not having a lot of emissions. But the more they do that, the more it gets to be dominated by one player was sort of a, a great feat to, to comply with those you know, regulatory claims, uh, regulatory, um, you know, issues on the, on the, on the emission side. So it is, it is very concentrated. Um, you know, and I think what you talk about in your articles is the tying of these products together, where if you have, um, you know, the GE makes a lot of the software that makes it optimal to, to drive, you know, trains for the greatest amount of fuel efficiency, I guess, if those only work with GE locomotives, um, you know, that violates some, some rules according to, to, to progress rail. Um, but, you know, another thing that, that comes up with this company, and um, I don't know if this is part of their uh, progress rails complaint or not, is that Wabitech really makes most of its margin on the aftermarket. So, uh, I mean, just like a lot of, you know, companies that manufacture equipment and then also service the equipment or, or supply parts that, that service, you know, the, the equipment when certain parts break down, they make a better margin on the aftermarket uh, components. And, you know, sometimes it can be, you know, difficult to use aftermarket componentry that's from a different, you know, company, you see things, you know, th that happen with um, industries like, like tractors. So, you know, that could potentially be an issue, you know, also, and then um, you mentioned that Progress Rail is alleging that there's false claims that the company made in investor presentations, suggesting that they're really the, the market in new locomotives almost seems like that would be more of an, of an SEC issue than, um, that, that, that anything, but, but, but definitely interesting, um, you know, article, any, anything else stand out to you from, um, you know, on this topic? Yeah. Yeah. Actually kind of what you mentioned, um, I think, you know, in addition to divesting GE transportation, um, you know, progress rail is saying, uh, that they, uh, that web tech has, um, violated two, um, interoperability agreements. Um, and one of them is, as you mentioned, sort of, uh, uh, the, the aftermarket product, uh, I think trip optimizer actually like, and, and how it doesn't completely, um, according to the agreement, it, it, it should, um, coordinate his systems, you know, with, with progress real systems, but doesn't quite do that. Um, according, you know, according to the legal briefing. Um, so that is, uh, one operability agreement that they feel is kind of in violation. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how um, it unfolds. Uh, I haven't checked the, um, the the filing since last week, so I'm not sure if Wabtech has replied yet. Um, uh, and uh, I, I had asked them about, you know, um, the the CFO's um, remarks, um, and uh, of course they, they deferred to the statement. And and I think, you know, that's, that's also partially because I, I think anything they, <laughs> that they say now, um, you know, to the press is is you know sort of 
potential fodder for, you know, um, part of the lawsuit. So, yeah, so really interesting to one to watch, um, you know, there. I uh, want to move on to the next story. Uh, Cincinnati voters are going to decide on whether to sell uh, the line uh, to Norfolk Southern that goes through Cincinnati. So usually at Freight Waves, when we're talking about Cincinnati, it's Clarissa talking about all the goings on at um, Total Quality Logistics, um, which she uh, seems to be a focus of, of hers oftentimes. But this is this time we're, we're presenting Cincinnati in, in maybe a different light. Um, you know, what, what are sort of the arguments on both sides here? I mean, this is, this is a unique situation. These cities don't usually own the, the rail lines. It's, uh, you know, by and large, it's owned by the, the, the Class 1 railroads. They were, they were gifted that, um, that land as part of the agreement, sort of in exchange for the common carrier obligation. But, but what are sort of the, the arguments on both sides of this? At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Sure, sure. So, um, so yeah, the, the city of Cincinnati owns the the land underneath the track, but, um, and I think it's, a, it's like an over 200 mile stretch from, um, from Cincinnati to Chattanooga. Um, but Norfolk Southern has actually always operated that, that operated in, and min, maintains that line. I can't speak today, um, through its subsidiary, uh, and, um, and Norfolk Southern leases, uh, the line, um, from the city. Uh, so, um, the city has, has decided, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's think about selling this, um, line to NS and use the profits from that essentially to, to fund infrastructure improvements in the city, kind of put it in a trust fund. So, you know, it always have, um, you know, that, that money banked, um, for infrastructure improvements. Um, and this is, this idea is coming up for a vote on November. So, so Cincinnati citizens must uh, approve uh, for this to happen. Um, if it does happen, then um, then NS will, um, you know, take ownership of the whole line uh, probably sometime the first half of next year. Um, if it doesn't happen, then um, the lease will continue through 20, 20, 20, 2016. And then we'll probably, or I said 2016, didn't I? I'm 2026. My mind is like not here today. Um, <laughs> 2026. And, uh, and, and, you know, it, it's probable that the lease will, you know, they'll renew the lease after that. But, um, you know, who's to say? Um, so, yeah, the two sides. So the city is, is um, really pushing for, uh, you know, to, to sell the line. I actually just saw a headline, I think, this morning about um, the, the Cincinnati mayor and maybe some other city officials too, you know, kind of. Uh, airing some commercials or some spots, um, uh, you know, public spots saying, you know, talk, talking about this um, potential um, um, arrangement. Uh, there is some vocal local opposition. I'm not sure how much um, the local opposition represents uh, the, the the citizens overall, um, but the vocal opposition um, primarily kind of, the argument kind of falls in, like two categories. One is, you know, um, 
that the city should be asking more money from Norfolk Southern. Maybe it's worth more than what it is. I, I think, and I don't know if this is true or not, you know, they're kind of talking about, well, you know, more money was quoted before. So, you know, so they're kind of um, not crazy about the $1.6 billion mark. Um, <laughs> and the uh, the other one, I think, is just the idea of, of owning um of, of owning this railroad asset because it's a unique unique uh situation and um and you know and you, Norfolk Southern um still is uh, you know is, is still has that, that tarnished um uh you know still has uh you know the you know, what with what happened with um uh East Palestine yeah so you know there's also that concern as well even though they are actually still operating fine so um so yes, yeah, so you have the local um, sense of concern, and also um, Railroad Workers United, which is an interunion group, has kind of also come in um, about the public ownership of the railroads, which is kind of what they advocate for in general. So you know, um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see exactly what happens. You know, I, I actually did talk about this on Freight Waves now, like earlier this week, and um, you know, I, I when I was speaking that I, 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 you know, I forgotten. You know, this is an off election year as well, so it'll be interesting to see like who exactly comes out to vote um you know whether you know the 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 opposition will be able to sort of rally people to sort of you know vote against it or if you'll have um you know the 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 people who normally come out plus other people who who might not otherwise come out um during a non-presidential election year (laughs) like will they come out too i don't know so yeah, so it's a little hard to say what will happen. And it's interesting because actually Norfolk Southern hasn't, um, they've been careful in, in how, you know, what what they measure. I shouldn't be careful. They, they, they've been measured in, in what they, uh, the sort of their their, their comments on on um, whether, uh, you know, the, the sale will happen or not. But they've been kind of saying, oh, we'll see what happens. So, yeah, it's too bad Jerry Springer isn't still around. We could get a quote from him. Yeah. Um, but I think if I was a resident of Cincinnati, I'd probably both to, to sell it if it means you don't have to raise my taxes anymore. Um, I'll move on to this next one. I'll handle this one. This is the intermodal contract rates come under pressure. This is one chart that really stands out from Sonar. And so what we're looking at here is uh, intermodal contract rates, sort of excluding fuel surcharges. So these are domestic intermodal contract rates. Uh, they're largely in lanes that are competitive with um, the highway. And uh, if you're not familiar with our uh, sonar charts on a year-over-year basis, these seasonality charts, each, each of those lines represents a year. So 2023 is that white line, which has been downward sloping, really showing uh, intermodal rates uh, coming under a lot of pressure after double-digit rate increases from 2020 to 2021. And then again, from 2021 to 2022, these coming going back the other way. We sort of look at an average of the last few weeks and look at what that is on a year-over-year basis. And I get it down about 17% uh, year over year. And what's interesting is, you know, we talked to a lot of uh, companies that uh, that ship intermodally as, as, as well as truckload. I mean, a lot of times just from the very same uh, facilities that they're, they're shipping both intermodal and, and truckload. And it just depends on how time sensitive something is uh, to a large extent and how good rail services is, is which mode, mode they'll use. And they just put out a big um, amount of freight out, out to bid and they were getting... Uh, Price reductions, contract rate declines that, that were even more severe than what we're showing on this on this chart, down more like thirty percent. And uh, the other nuance there is that there was more pressure um, on uh, domestic intermodal contracts for the asset-based carriers 
as opposed to the non-asset based carriers. And and the reason for that is the asset based carriers they've taken delivery of lots of uh, containers here recently. They want to keep those containers utilized and turned. The non-asset based carriers don't have the same degree of pressure and would have to get a container from somewhere when they uh, when they um, you know arrange an intermodal load. So really, intermodal. Um, you know, uh, rates coming under a lot of pressure. We'll see, um, you know, how this uh, sort of manifests itself when the companies report earnings uh, starting in mid-October. Usually starts out with uh, J.B. Hunt, followed by the Class 1 Railroads. I'm going to hear from Hub Group a little bit later. But um, kind of one of many, you know, sort of headwinds from that we're, we're seeing in the rail, uh, you know, industry did uh, hear from Union Pacific on that, that recent, you know, analyst meeting that, they were essentially talking down numbers in, in the in the third quarter, um, you know, not just because volume was disappointing, but also because there were lots of cost headwinds um, and uh, I think just a lot going on uh, there. Uh, also, get a lot of questions on what's happening with motor vehicle uh, volume in light of the uh, strike, uh, United Auto Workers strike, and you know those that uh, volume comes out every Wednesday in the AAR. We get it into our system kind of very early on Thursday morning and have a couple of charts on uh, motor vehicle shipments. And what's what's interesting is, you know, really haven't seen as of uh, this most recent week, uh, a big fall off in motor vehicle shipments outbound from, you know, the United States and really finished motor vehicles that makes up 80 or 85% of what's in that, this this data is finished motor vehicles. You see in, in, in orange how there were, you know, almost none uh, during the you know, start of the pandemic, those auto plants were shut down, they recovered. And really ever since then, auto supplies have been tight. And, you know, right uh, right now, when you compare 2023 volume to 2022 volume, um, U.S. motor vehicle shipments on the railroads up 22.7% in the last week and up 14% year over year in the past four weeks. So if anything, there was a little bit of a surge on the railroads. So it suggests to me that there was enough finished vehicles uh, that were nearby manufacturing, U.S. manufacturing plants that uh, it didn't impair what they needed to get on the railroad immediately. Now that could, this this strike persists, could fall off you know, rather dramatically. What's also interesting is turning this next chart on Canada, motor vehicle shipments from Canada, those have been strong. You see the white line 2023 volume there. Um, see a little bit of a surge in the last week. And those are actually up in this week ending September 23rd, up 32.7% year over year. And in that week, up 16.7% higher than the average weekly volume year to date in 2023. So Canada does seem to be benefiting uh, from the UAW strike, although it did seem like that volume has been strong. Ever since about um, so ever since there's a since about May, uh, want to move on to the next uh, story here. This is one you wrote up, Joanna, on Greenbrier orders, and Greenbrier um, had a huge uh, volume of, of of orders. They tend to announce their uh, railcar orders that they received during their fiscal quarter. Seems like about a month before they report those, um, you know, th- that that volume and. I'm not sure why exactly, exactly, other than you know, my only speculation is they do that because they don't want it to to leak, and then someone speculates on the on the on stock price, and uh, they can get in trouble that way potentially. Um, but you know, a large number of orders received fifteen thousand three hundred orders, and this is a company that usually manufactures 
something like 20,000 cars in a full year. And they said they didn't have any multi-year um, orders in there, which sometimes you see from a big company like a GTX, they'll get a better deal. They'll have a multi-year deal with, you know, often up in Trinity, another you know, rail car manufacturer. Uh, but said they didn't have any of that. And they said it was it was uh, broad based across a number of different rail car types. And so I guess my, my question is, you know, why are they receiving so many orders when rail traffic hasn't been hasn't been great? It seems like rail service has improved. So that would actually um, cause less demand for new equipment because you're utilizing the existing equipment e- efficiently. Um, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think that you know, one of the reasons that they gave was, um, kind of, you know, looking at the the, the pending retirements of, of various um, rail cars, like the box cars, for instance. I mean, you know, they they have um, a life, you know, a set lifespan of you know every however many decades, and then you know they they have to retire. I I think by by federal federal law, they have to retire um, those assets. And so I think um, you know there there is that factor, and uh, and and that's. A reason that they've um, stated um, it is an interesting number in the sense that you know it is higher, uh, you know, uh, pretty high, and, and as you know, kind of surprising that you know it's it's um, one of the highest higher numbers that they've seen um, in you know the last I don't know eight to ten years or so. Um, I, other than that, it's kind of you know me speculating. I, I don't know you know if it's you know because because it is a quieter market right now. Maybe that's that's the time. Um, uh, to, you know, to, to, to go looking for, for, uh, new purchases, you know, be, before, you know, there's, there's a, a big demand for them. Um, but that's, you know, that's just kind of normal <laughs> sort of, you know, with the way, uh, economics go, but, um, but yeah, I mean, retirements for sure. Uh, I, I think that's, that's something that, that people are looking at. Um, but I don't know, do you have any, any thoughts on, you know, what might be factors or? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, those rail cars are pretty specific to the types of products that are being moved and sort of even oh, even though overall carload traffic um, pretty soft and aggregate, uh, there's still some pockets of, of strength there. I mean, actually, one of them has been the, the auto racks, um, you know, some of those, the, the chemical uh, cars seem to be in demand. That seems to be a growing area overall. Uh, those cars don't tend to last as long as some of the, the other uh car types, there's, there's tank cars, um, the chemicals tend to you know, corrode them a little bit. So I, I think there's, there's maybe there can be pockets of strength, even though um, there's, there's excesses of other car types. Um, want to move on to the next um, you know, topic here. This is another one that you wrote up, and it seems like this is part of a theme of companies expanding their intermodal services. And this time uh, you're talking about Norfolk Southern expanding domestic intermodal services in uh, Florida. Um, got a chart with some some palm trees uh, there, and um, is that a Florida East Coast uh, rail railroad? And we actually have a good sonar chart that that kind of explains this in a in a in a, in a map format, uh, where the Florida East Coast Railroad is the one in 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 Florida in in yellow there. So it goes from Miami, nor just as the name of the railroad suggests, it goes. It's the Florida East Coast Railroad. It goes from from Miami. To Jacksonville, and then you see the purple lines are Norfolk Southern's network, uh, and those go through. I mean, easily, you know, of course, do a lot in Atlanta, you know, do a lot in Chicago, like all the railroads do, but a lot, a lot largely sort of east-west. And so you're talking about how partnering um, to get into more markets, both sort of in and out of Florida, 
And you know, one thing that, that strikes me is HLV's sonar chart on domestic uh, loaded volume from Chicago to Jacksonville and Jacksonville back to Florida. And what, what strikes me about this is, is this is the container count uh, in between those. So this is loaded domestic containers, so 53-foot lo- containers that are loaded. In white is Chicago to Jacksonville, so they're southbound. 133 containers uh, on average on a day in the last week. Going back um, from north, Jacksonville, Chicago, about 95. So it's, it's not one of the denser lanes. Um, and, and you do makes you wonder if you know more partnerships like this can make that volume even even denser, um, you know, than it is, or even take it take it further south into, into, into Miami. I know um, they they move a lot of uh, consumer goods northbound um, from you know Miami, South Florida, up through Jacksonville, and that go onward. Um, a lot of oranges as well. Um, and then interesting, they they have a kind of laundry list of, of steel wheel interchange, you know, points. Um, you know, talking about Chicago, Cincinnati, Harrisburg. Uh, Kansas City, Memphis, so a lot of just real key places that um, could potentially see easier service in and out of Florida. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on this after writing that article? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I like the Sudai charts. Those are really nice. Um, you know, kind of when I was writing it, I, I was kind of looking up the, the, the past recent um, announcements where there have been uh, sort of expanded intermodal service offerings. And um, and actually, Norfolk Southern um, has does have another one with um, CN, uh, Canadian National, um, which will actually also start the same day that the Florida East Coast Railway um, partnership will start. So they're both starting on on Monday. And, uh, and you know, the, the CN um, slash NS partnership was kind of touting you know, the the access to the southeast markets and so you know so it's it's um i guess so if you think about florida if you want to connect those two dots together so you have you know florida on one end and and canada on the other end and sort of you know what sort of uh potential um uh business might flow between those two um pairings so uh, yeah it, it it is you know an interesting combo yeah, for sure. Um, so what else are you working on for um, the next week that we can yeah. talk about uh, next Thursday? Yeah, yeah, yeah next Thursday. <laughs> Let's see, what am I working on? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I know what I'm working on for like a week and a half from now, but for next week, let's see. Um, actually, uh, how we look at, um, you know, there's a potential uh, shutdown of the federal government and whether or not that actually happens. Um, you know, how does that affect um, freight rail operations? And so I uh, hope to do that, um, you know, before the end of this week. Uh, so that's that's one piece. For the railroad? So that shut down Amtrak? Is that what would happen for the for, for the railroad industry? Or? No, but it's more sort of like, you know, all the all the agencies and and, um, you know, and, and how that might affect uh, sort of like safety inspections it does it all. I mean, you know, the same sort of similar things that you would think about with like the FAA. And interesting though, I was kind of looking at um at a link that described all the DOT agencies and and what what would be essential operations and what wouldn't be. And a, and a, and it does you know affect the rails, uh, maritime, and aviation. But a lot of the um a lot of the uh sort of highway stuff is actually covered under a different um, funding source 
the uh, I think the highway trust fund. And so that's actually not affected. Um, those those things are not affected by the um, by the uh, by a, a shutdown. Don't call me on that totally. <laughs> I, I think that's kind of what I I uh, th- th- I think that's what I, I gleaned from from looking at it for like a few minutes. Yeah, I'm sure the class one railroads would have no problem with um, the service transportation board being shut down um, temporarily or permanently. <laughs> and, and on that note, um, that's all we have for today. Wish everyone a good day.